Let us pray. What a privilege and honor it is to be here to sing to our holy God and remember His wonderful grace that He gives us. We pause now in giving to commemorate that grace. We do this to the King of kings and Lord of lords, even Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. I received a call this week from a lady that is a a dear Christian lady. She's elderly. Her husband is infirm. And she was asking for uh, some assistance so that she's able to uh, get to the grocery store. And uh, for people who live in the Brenham area, if you would like to serve the Lord in this way, I'll give you her number. Her number is Joe. I mean, her name is Joe Parker. And her number is 836-9941. I know that we all have our issues, our problems, and our daily planner is probably full. But you never know, you might be the next one that needs assistance. And you can uh, serve the Lord in this fashion if you desire. The number again is 836-9941. Let's prepare ourselves this morning for the study of God's Word. We do that by having a few moments of silent prayer. During that time, we have the opportunity to name privately to God the Father any unconfessed sins, which ensures the filling of the Holy Spirit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you are our God, our rock, our salvation. We thank you for your mighty word that is absolute and inerrant. We thank you that we, in these times of turmoil and trouble, can have peace, that we can have confidence, that we can have courage. We can have a personal sense of eternal destiny. Even though things continue to degenerate, times get more and more troubled, it is because of who and what you are and your mighty grace and your provisions for us that we are able to stand firm for the truth and for who and what you are. So we pray that you will help us this very day to focus and concentrate on that word. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I think before we get into our study in Joshua chapter 9, I have some things to say about the current event that occurred yesterday, the uh, day of prayer. Our governor, Rick Perry, uh, called the day of prayer, and it was at the uh, Reliance Stadium in Houston. I see that about 30,000 people attended is what they estimate. And I'm sorry that I didn't get this information to you sooner. In fact, uh, there were a couple of handouts I was going to give you today. But uh, we, or at least I, am having mechanical attacks, if you call printers machines. I have two printers at home that do not work. Came to church today, and we have two printers at church that do not work. So out of four printers uh, that don't work, that's why I don't have the handouts for you. And that's one reason that I didn't get this information to you sooner. First of all, I'd like to say that what was carried on yesterday is absolutely constitutional. Uh, has d- does not go against the Bill of Rights in any way. Of course, you're always going to have the groups like the ACLU, the Antichrist Lawyers Association, that are going to be out there, and they're going to be... (laughs) Did I say it wrong? (laughs) They are going to be out there picketing and causing trouble, uh, and there are always going to be those atheists and so forth who are going to uh, disparage anything that has to do with our Lord and with Christianity. The fact is that it was privately funded, And the government did not coerce or force anyone to attend nor to change their religious beliefs. So we can just set that aside to begin with. 
Furthermore, there's been a national day of prayer ever since 1952 when uh, President Truman inaugurated this. It started out to be, I think, the uh, first Thursday of the month, started in May at that time. And many presidents, including uh, George Washington, our first president, uh, had a certain time set aside for prayer. So on that basis, uh, it was altogether fitting and proper. Um, however, um, I believe and I agree with a lot of my colleagues that uh, what was done was a right thing done in a wrong way. And I'll explain that to you. I had a handout. So, oh, they were really great. Uh, Dr. Robbie Dean. What? You have them? Where are they? You got how many? Oh, 30. Okay. George, if you'll come down here and just sit it here on the table. So the one in the nursery worked? Uh, Fabian's worked. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> it was a little too late for the bulletins. Everybody was already here. But we do have this. This is by uh, Dr. Robbie Dean, a pastor of West Houston Bible Church. He did, uh, years ago, he did a very thorough study on some of the groups that are associated with this, uh, with this gathering. Um, in fact, um, I found something that will explain it uh, fairly well. It's from uh, Brandon House World, uh, Worldview Weekend. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Uh, but th I, I just have a, a couple of excerpts from that uh, from the um, July 29th uh, is when this was posted. Let me say that uh, I am altogether far uh, praying for our nation and getting together to pray for our nation. This is something that we are um, admonished, we are commanded to do in First uh, Timothy. However, uh, we have to do it in a right way. And uh, Brandon House, as well as, like I said, so many of my other uh, doctrinal uh, pastors that are theologically correct would have nothing to do with it because uh, we have to be careful who we associate with. And what this is saying is going to uh, explain this. The response, that is what this is sometimes called, was this prayer event. As this event is being called, is being promoted as a time of prayer and repentance. However, how can Christians and Christian leaders gather together in spiritual enterprise, a spiritual service, with individuals that embrace a theology and doctrine that teaches a different Jesus and a different gospel? I and thousands of pastors and theologians believe that the Word of God reveals that the teaching of the New Apostolic Reform, also known as NAR, has dozens of uh, offshoots, an assortment of names uh, such as Dominionists. Dominionists are people who sometimes they say dominion now, and what they're trying to do is improve the, the world, and when it gets improved enough, then Christ is going to return. Um, the latter reign, Kansas City prophets, the third wave, Joel's army manifested, sons of God, fivefold ministry, and IHOP. That's not the International House of Pancakes. <laughs> it's the International House of Prayer. These are quasi-cultic organizations that uh, if you look into their theology and what they are about, you wouldn't want to be associated with them in any way, shape, or form. Uh, Brandon goes on to say, I believe that uh, these people uh, who have associated with this event are guilty of getting credibility to false teachers by choosing to unite with them. Ephesians 5.11 says, And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. 2 Timothy 3.5 and from such people turn away. He says, I fear the American church is following in the steps of the German Christians that eliminated their denominations and abandoned doctrinal purity in order to unite under the Reich bishop so they might save their country. 
nationalism or ecumenical patriotism, mysticism, and a lack of biblical discernment which leads to tolerance of false teaching are growing in America. This past April, this Brandon House who wrote, had this article said, quote, Christians that partner with false teachers and think they are defending liberty for the sake of the gospel are compromising the gospel for the sake of liberty. Then he says, I warned then, as I do now, that the mixing of evangelicals with false prophets for the sake of the church, uh, for the culture war, is really an offense to the gospel. When Christians compromise the gospel and unite with false teachers in spiritual and political enterprises, regardless of the political outcome, we have lost because we, have gave, uh, we gave credibility to false teachers and their false gospel. Satan has moved his false teachers into our camp as a religious Trojan horse, and Christian leaders have embraced the true Trojan horse of false teachers. It's not that we don't need a call to prayer. I received an email that was, uh, gave some information on Joel Osteen, um, excuse me, Joel Rosenberg. Just a slip of the tongue there. <laughs> anyway, um, Joel gave a, a very good description of the need for prayer in this country. I fear that we are on the brink. Uh, we can be brought down in so many different ways, and yet people are thinking, let's just keep the status quo full steam ahead as if we can go on ignoring God and ignoring His Word, ignoring all the fundamental principles with regards to economics, with regards to everything with regards to the Constitution, and think that all is well. Well, there's, a, there's a, at least a certain segment of society that believes that we are on very thin ice. And I want you to know that this church prays for our nation and for its leaders. We do it every Thursday night, our, um, the, the Thursday in our Bible class before we have prayer meeting. And we always raise up our nation and leaders in that regard. And if there is a call, if there are those who would like to have a special time of prayer just for our nation, certainly we will accommodate that. So what I'm saying essentially is you don't have to go to a big event and identify yourself with people who probably are not even Christians or at best they are teaching false doctrine in order to help this nation out of the morass that it is in now. The, the very best thing that you can do is what you're doing right now. And that is, take advantage of every opportunity that you have to study God's Word, to be among like-minded believers to encourage and admonish one another, to continue to grow in grace and knowledge. This is what is going to bring this country out of the sorry state that it is in if indeed God will spare His wrath. And only God knows... Uh, what it will take for him not to pour out his wrath and judgment on our country. So I think that's all I wanted to say about that. If you went to this event or if you supported it, I don't want you to feel embarrassed or anything. If there's any blame to be brought in that regard, it should be on me for not bringing this to you sooner. But I do have, this is a full page of what uh, Dr. Dean has said about this. I got this two weeks ago, and I did not get it to you before now. And it, this was, you talk about the last minute. Uh, as I was speaking, I think, is when they finished copying it in the, uh, in the junior class. Okay, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 9. Joshua chapter 9. We're studying an area of the Bible that has so many principles that we can glean. The Gibeonites were pagans. They lived in an area that God had 
dedicated to oblivion. He had instructed the Israelites to annihilate certain parts of the land of Canaan, and they were in that part. They believed that the God of Israel was the true God. They believed, I'm talking about the Gibeonites, these people in this particular city, believe from the evidence, from what they heard and the reports that came about that God could do what he said he could do. And of course, even though they were pagans and idolaters, they never saw any of their idols be able to do what the God of Israel did. And they heard that they were going to be annihilated, so they came up with a scheme. They went to Joshua, and they pretended that they came from an area outside the part that was dedicated to annihilation. And it worked. They conned Joshua and the leaders into thinking that uh, they were one of those cities out, out of the, that certain bounds and that they could make a covenant, they could make a treaty with these Gibeonites. And so we have already studied how they made a big mistake. What Joshua did was what we do so often. He ran a couple of tests. First of all, he ran the logical test. He heard what they said. He heard the story that they gave, and it sounded logical. Then he ran the empirical test. He looked at the physical evidence, and they had sandals that were worn. Their clothes were tattered. Uh, they looked like they had come from a long journey. And, of course, all this was contrived because they were very close to where Israel was located at that time in the land of Canaan, which was close to Jericho, Ai, and Gilgal. In fact, it was Gilgal where they traveled to give them this information. So Joshua and the leaders made a, a pact. They Actually, they swore an oath that they would not annihilate the Gibeonites. Then about three days later, they found out that they had been had. They found out that, indeed, the Gibeonites lived in that particular area. And so we find that uh, there is a, a principle here that we don't want to miss. What should they do? They messed up. They didn't go to God. By the way, they did have a third area that they could have used or a third method to determine if they should have believed the story or not. And that was they could have taken it before what the King James says, the mouth of God. The mouth of God is referring to Eleazar, which was the high priest. And Eleazar had the, the uh, breastplate, in, which is somehow identified with what no one knows for sure what it is. It's called Urim and Thummim. But they would use this device or this procedure, whatever it was, in order to get an answer from God. And God would say either yes or he would say no. They didn't run that. They didn't go through the right procedure, and so they made a mistake. And, of course, we can look to our time and we think, okay, we don't have Urim and Thummim. We, sh we go through the logical test. We go through the empirical test to determine if something is true, if it's valid, if we should go forward with it. But what do we do? What's, see, what we find is that Joshua didn't go to the Lord. And that's what we do so many times. We make decisions without going to the Lord. We can go to the Lord at any time in prayer. We can go to the throne room of God and ask for wisdom. Do you think God answered those prayers? He says that he does. His own essence, his own character, his own perfection, and his veracity demands that he answer those kind of prayers. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is also a guide. But we have another thing that God has given us, which is our conscience. And what we should do in those situations is make sure that our conscience is in harmony with our intellect, or we might say with our soul. We might even say with the doctrine that is in our soul. We went into a couple of passages where we illustrated that there were people who had gone against their conscience. They had eaten meat that was dedicated to idols, and they thought it was wrong to do. But they saw other believers doing it, and they thought, well, if they can do it, then I can do it. And they went ahead and did it, even though they down deep thought it was wrong. See, that's where your soul and your conscience are not in harmony. 
So if you ever have a decision to make, you want to, you want to go through the logical test, the empirical test. You want to go to the Lord in prayer asking for wisdom. You want to make sure you're filled with the Holy Spirit. And you also want to make sure that your conscience and what is in your soul is in harmony, that you're not going against it. As it turns out, the people who thought it was wrong to eat meat dedicated to idols were wrong in that assumption. It would have been perfectly fine for them to eat that meat, even though it was dedicated to idols. But because they ate it thinking that it's wrong, then it was wrong. Because any time you go against your conscience, any time that you, for the most part, we say sometimes go against your better nature, these type of things. Anything that is not of faith is sin. So these are some of the things that we've gleaned so far. And now we find uh, we went to Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 12 through 19. I'm not going to go there again. I went there in detail last time. But what this is referring to is a king that was in power, or at least put in power, when... King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was essentially taking over uh, Israel and he took a lot of the people back to uh, Babylon or Chaldea. Babylon and Chaldea are the same. And so when he did that, uh, this king made a pact. He made an oath. What we're doing, what are, we, what are we smiling at? Are we hearing something? What are we hearing? <laughs> you might try sitting on it. <laughs> uh, don't worry about it. Uh, this is a test of concentration. I can always tell when people start, give me that silly looking grin. I thought, uh-huh. I don't think it was something that I said. But that's all right, Art. You know, we older senior citizens have some of these devices. I don't have mine with me now, thank goodness. <laughs> uh Okay, so King Nebuchadnezzar came down. He made a deal. And he, the king of Israel made an oath that he would not stir up trouble, that he would go along with what the ones who actually were possessing the land, uh, whatever the dictates were, they were going to be in harmony with them. Well, what happened was the king broke his oath. He went down into Egypt to try to get them to side with him to overtake uh, Babylon. Now, what we find here is that God was not happy with this king whatsoever. In fact, he was, he was prophesied, God said, you are going to die in Babylon. It cost him his life. What we're going to see through this and other scriptures that we're going to today is that God takes oaths extremely seriously. Even in what we find in Joshua chapter 9, here you had Joshua and the leaders making an oath that they should not have made. They were deceived and they made an oath. But after they made the oath, they did the right thing because they stuck with it. Now, we are plagued today with people who, and, and I'm talking about our entire society. I don't know if it's this way around the world, but I would assume that it, it, it is. The people say things all the time. They make promises, especially in the political realm. Oh, wow. Uh, I might say at this point that every person that is uh, in government makes an oath to abide and uh, support the Constitution of the United States. Well, that lasts about as long as it takes to smoke a cigarette, maybe. Uh, and, and so we are accustomed to people not keeping their word and making oaths. I'll get to this maybe in a little bit with regards to marriage. I don't know how many uh, weddings I've done, but every wedding that I do, I tell the people, I talk with the folks usually ahead of time, and I tell them, we can, however you want to manage the, the wedding, a ring ceremony and all this, I, I don't care. It's all fluff. But when it gets down to the oaths, that's the meat of it. That is the marriage. That is the commitment before God. And you're doing it before God and you're doing it before other people. And un unfortunately, we have, they, they say that we have 
the divorce rate is 50% in our country. It's the same with Christians as it is with, with unbelievers. And so it appears that people are taking this, this oath very lightly. I'm not saying that the Bible does not give legitimate grounds for divorce, but certainly one half of the marriages do not have biblical grounds for divorce. So we have to understand that we're looking at something that we have to actually acclimatize ourselves to how God is. Because His thinking is not our thinking, especially the way He acts is not the way we act. And we have a great illustration here in Joshua where they made an oath that they should not have made, but an oath is an oath. Let's get down where we live for just a second, okay? Not necessarily where you live, but maybe where some of your family members live, maybe where some of your friends live. Most people, I think, get married, and they make the oath. And... By the way, the oath that I give is not the one I mean, that I um, that I require if someone wants to be married by me. And I've married people that uh, they didn't go to this church. As a rule, I don't marry people unless uh, they're members of this church. But if they are members of this church, I would gladly do it. I have people all the time sending me emails. They run, they come by, they they roam by, they see the church, they look it up on the internet. Oh, I'd love to get married there. And they say, will you uh, marry us? And can we use your church and all this? And my standard answer, no. But when I do marry someone, I do require that they go by the oath that I subscribe to. With the Bible, actually, it's based on biblical principles. See, there is no oath. When pastors uh, do a wedding and they're, do you promise to da-da-da, it's not that you can't go to verse and uh, chapter and verse to find that. But... It should be based on the principles of God's Word. And for the ladies, I say that part of your oath is that you promise to love, honor, and obey your husband. You should see some of the looks I've got when I've, seen, when I've done that. <laughs> One couple. <laughs> One couple, when I said that, they were sitting before me and when I said love, honor, and obey, and I said it about like that, I said, do you, do, do, you do you have a problem with this? And the wife said no. And the husband was going, he was looking over, I'm not the husband, the fiancé. He looked like he was shocked out of his mind. And he said, do you know what he's saying? She said, yes. I don't think that they really discussed everything that they should before they were married. Anyway. We're talking about taking an oath, and so many times today it's forgotten. Listen, an oath is not ever to be forgotten. God certainly does not forget an oath that you make. And here's something that I think is a plus from what we're going to glean from the Scriptures today, and that is that when you make an oath, even if you have been deceived like the Gibeonites and you make a mistake, how many people have gotten married and it turned out to be a mistake? The wrong one. Well, I don't think there's a marriage that's ever been made that lasted any length of time to where the person thought, am I sure I married the right one? Who was it? Uh, uh, Carlson was his name. I was listening to a CD on the, um, in the car. Ron Carlson, that's his name. He's a Jewish guy, great speaker. And he said, uh, someone asked him, well, do you, have you ever contemplated divorcing your wife? He said, never. He said, I've never contemplated divorcing my wife because he understood the, the importance of an oath. He said, well, murder, many times. <laughs> but never divorce. So... Uh, but here's the good news. We're going to see that God is going to honor an oath, even though it was made in a, in a, in a way or in, in circumstances that should not have been made. Now, let's, let's apply this to marriage. What if you made an oath and you regret it later? Today, it's so easy to get a divorce. All you have to say is that, well, we have... Um, 
we are non-compatible. Uh, we don't agree. What's the term? Somebody help me. Irrec- irrec- irreconcilable differences. That's all it takes, and boom, you're divorced. I don't know. I think maybe in Las Vegas by now or in Nevada, they might have drive through window divorces. Just go through there and throw some papers at them. They throw them back. I don't know what it is. But it's nearly at that point. Here's the good news. You see, I was told over and over uh, that if you marry the wrong one, tough. You've had it, and that was it. I mean, that's hard to swallow. But here's the, here's the I want to give you a little nugget that might be helpful. If you make that oath, and you think that you married to number one on the hit list of bad wives, or husbands, God will bless you if you honor your oath. Now that's huge, isn't it? If you, most of us are married, and every married person, I believe. Um, They're not in a perpetual honeymoon. And eventually they recognize that marriage is not the panacea. Marriage is hard work. It's wonderful. But there might be times in that marriage where the only glue that sticks it together is the fact that you swore an oath before God, wives, that you would love, honor, and obey your husband, and you husband swore an oath to love, honor, and protect. Do you hear that? Love your wives. So that, that, I don't know if you got it because y'all are awfully solemn at this point, but that's good news, isn't it? We don't have to depend on our wives. We don't have to depend on our husbands for God to bless our marriage. If we are faithful, if we... Don't stray, whatever the temptations may be. If we honor that, God is going to honor our marriage and He's going to bless us. That's something that we can glean from this. Now, one reason that God is so... He he takes oaths so seriously is this, and we don't want to miss this because this is another good nugget. This is another good news. Because God makes oaths to us. He makes promises to us. And if he's that serious about breaking oaths, we can take it to the bank that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, according to John 3.36, it says, what does it say that we have? Let's hear it. Eternal life. That's a promise. Now, since God takes promises so seriously we can be guaranteed that he means what he says. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13, actually we went through verses 10 through 13. I have it on the PowerPoint. I could show you right now, but I'm trying, to, I'm trying to press on. But there's so many good things, I don't want to leave anything behind. Now, what 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses, I think, 11 through 13, we, we, if we, well, I'll put it on the board. I might as well do it. I wasn't going to reteach it, but I'm going to at least show it to you on the board. That is if my um, computer will work with me here. There it is. And you can be turning in your Bible if you like, Second Timothy chapter 2. And we want to look at, uh, here it is. Come on, generate it up. Okay, here it is. These are a couple of the uh, promises that God has made to us. I gave you the first one already, John 3:36. Now, in 2 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 13, a lot of people will go here to try to make the case that you can lose your salvation. 
Verse 11 says, It is a trustworthy statement, for if we died and we did with Him, with Christ, we shall also live with Him. That has to do with retroactive positional truth and current positional truth. Now verse 12. If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. When it says, if we endure, it means, do we continue to execute God's plan? Are we going to continue to grow in grace and knowledge? Are we going to learn God's Word and apply it to our lives? If we endure, if we do that, we shall also reign with Him. Now, reigning with Christ is a reward. Not everyone's going to reign. Only those who reach spiritual maturity that endure through their life, learning and growing. And it says then in verse 12, if we deny Him, He will also deny us. Now, the context of this is clearly, what is he going to deny us? He's going to not deny us the rewards. He just talked about one reward. And so it's impossible for him to deny us eternal life, the entrance into heaven. He will not revoke the righteousness that he imputes to us at the moment of salvation. He does not revoke eternal life. He couldn't do it even if he wanted to, and he doesn't want to. So these things cannot be revoked and you don't lose, if you, if you deny him, it doesn't mean that he's going to deny you entrance into heaven. He's going to deny you reward. Now, verse 13 is the meat of it. If we are faithless, are we faithless? Come on, are we faithless? Some of you look like your holdouts. We are faithless. Oh, I know there are times, and maybe in a large part of the time, we are faithful. But none of us are 100% faithful. And for someone to be able to get into heaven, they have to be 100% faithful. They have to abide by the Mosaic Law, which isn't just the Ten Commandments, which nobody can keep anyway. It's over 600 commandments. And if there was a person that could keep all 600 and some odd commandments of the Mosaic Law, and they were 100% of the time faithful, faithful, could they get into heaven? That's a trick question, and I'm, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, you, you probably would say yes, but the problem is uh, we have an inherent old sin nature. That would disqualify us to begin with. But it, for the most part, let's just say theoretically a person could get into heaven, but the problem is nobody can do that. The Mosaic Law was given not only to give instructions to Israel as to how they were to operate as a nation, it also was given to show that no one can keep the Mosaic Law. No one except one person has ever kept it perfectly. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we are faithless, and I said all that so you'll know, yes, we are faithless, He remains faithful for He cannot deny Himself. He cannot deny his own perfect veracity, his own perfect righteousness, his own perfect justice. He can't give us eternal life and his own righteousness and say, oh, oops, messed up on that one. I better take that one back. That never happens. He cannot deny himself. This is the foundational part of the eternal security. When you believe in Jesus Christ and trust in him and him alone, for eternal salvation, you are born again, you're regenerated. There's over 40 things that happen at that moment that are permanent and nothing can undo them. Now, if God took oaths lightly, then wouldn't we have a bit of concern about the oaths that He gives us with regards to our eternal destiny? I spent a lot more time on that than I intended to, but there we are. Okay, uh, now I want you to turn to Psalm chapter 15. We're going we're gonna to read the entire Psalm 15. Some of you saying, oh no, my stomach's already growling. Don't despair, it only has four verses. There it is on the board if you want to see it. Psalm 15, 1 through 4. A Psalm of David... Psalm 15, 1 through 4, this is verse 1. A psalm of David, O Lord, who may abide in thy tent, who may dwell on thy holy hill. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. He does not slander with his tongue, 
nor does evil with his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Verse 4, in whose eyes a reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. Now look at this. I have it underlined up here. He swore, he swears to his own hurt and does not change. Another place that shows us what God thinks about taking an oath. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. Now, what does it mean when he says he, swe he, he swears to his own hurt? Have you ever sworn to your own hurt? Have you ever promised someone something and after you did it, you thought, oh, man, wish I hadn't have done that. Have you ever tried to wiggle out of a commitment? Oh, no. And here's the question. And did you change? Did you create a lie to get out of it? Well, even on the little things, this is why it's hard. Because we can so easily release ourselves from our commitments. And you might say, well, I didn't take an oath. I didn't raise my hand and I didn't uh, swear on a stack of Bibles. One reason we are in the calamity that we are in today, worldwide, is because people no longer abide by what they say. And they very casually will break their promises, break their word. I think the generation of World War II, those men and women had a fabulous heritage, and that was a time that I think this country may have been at its zenith. And I like to talk to the men that were in World War II. My dad was one of them. Not all of them, but most of them, it appeared, when they said something, you could take it to the bank. If my dad said he was going to be at a certain place at a certain time, if he wasn't there... You could call the, the hospitals or call AAA or something because for some reason physically he could not be there. When he made a commitment, he kept it. When he had a responsibility, he fulfilled it. He tried to drive that into me one day. I was working with him on a construction job. He was the boss. By the way, you don't ever work for your, your dad if he's the boss because he doesn't want anyone to think that he's going to show partiality so you're going to get all the dirty jobs. But in this case, it was, uh, the place was at Astroworld. It was when Astroworld was being built. It was a huge complex, hotels, uh, the Astrodome, all this. Anyway, it was a big place. And he told me, I, I've, I've lost a chain. I want you to find it. He described the chain, just, you know, a, a chain. I said, okay. And I went, and I, where do you look? I mean, that's a big place. So I looked, and I, I was gone about, uh, I guess, maybe 20 minutes, half an hour, and I came back. And I said, uh, I don't know where you put the chain. I, uh, uh, I just can't find it. And he said, that's not good enough. He said, I gave you a responsibility, and you can't come back here and casually say you can't do it. Find the chain. Yes, sir. I was gone three hours. And the whole time, I, I mean, that's a big place. I came back. And I came back to him without the chain. I, I guess I could have gone and bought one. I came back without the chain, and I very humbly said to him, Sir, I've looked everywhere that I know to look. It is physically impossible for me to find the chain, but if you want me to keep Looking, I'll look until dark when I can't see anymore. He said, okay. What was he trying to teach me? If you have a responsibility, if you say something, your word means something. There was a time that your word was your bond. And today they say you are a fool if you make a deal on, a shake, on, on shaking hands. And that's unfortunate because everybody thinks you've got to have uh, 
contracts. You've got to have it in paper. And maybe, I don't know, maybe to a degree, and it depends on the circumstances, that's a good idea. But it's a shame. There never was a contract that has been made that another lawyer can't get out of, for one thing. He who swears to his own hurt, you've all been there, you don't change. Boy, are we going to see more of that. <laughs> I don't know if you've read ahead, if you know what uh, is coming up in Joshua. Um, something is... Uh, well, let's just show you. I, I'm trying to squeeze another hour of time into about seven minutes. So let's just go to Second Samuel chapter 21. Second Samuel chapter 21. This will help you understand how important your word is. Second Samuel chapter 21, we'll start with verse 1. Now, to give you a little background, Saul is king. And this is 400 years. You hear that? 400 years after the Gibeon incident. And let's read. Now, there was a, man, a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the presence of the Lord, and the Lord said, It is for Saul and his bloody house because he put the Gibeonites to death. Now, we can already see something, can't we? 400 years later, different people, different king. Is this oath still abiding? The oath that Joshua made to the Gibeonites that he would not, they would not be annihilated, is it still in effect? Absolutely. In fact, we see that this famine in the days of David, three years. Now listen, we have a bad drought going on here, don't we? In fact, I heard that Texas A&M said that this is the worst drought we had since the 18, 1880s. That's a severe drought. And people are severely suffering already. Think of three years. See, when you have famine, you can understand that there's a drought associated with that famine. These are agrarian societies. They depended on their crops and so forth. No rain, no crops. And this has gone on for three years. Can you imagine the weather that we've had for just, let's say, eight months? Not even eight months. It's getting more severe. Can you imagine that lasting three years? God means business, and this is severe suffering that's going on, and it's because the leader broke an oath. It wasn't an oath that he made, but he broke it. Verse 2. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the sons of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. Now this is just saying that Gibeonites were part of the pagans that lived in the land of Canaan when Joshua and the Israelites went in to take the land. They didn't have anything to do with Israel and we already went over the circumstances. The only reason they weren't annihilated because they conned the leaders and the leaders made an oath. Well, people can make all the excuses they want well this was oath was taken under deceiving under deception they didn't really have the facts does that make any difference an oath is an oath and when you make an oath when it gets tough you don't change verse 3 thus david said to the gibeonites what should i do for you in other words they had suffered wrongly Saul broke the oath. And David says, how can, we, how can we make it right with you? And how can I make the atonement, uh, make atonement that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? In other words, they had a case against the Israelites. What can we do to make this right? Verse 4. Then the Gibeonites said to him, We have no concern of silver or gold with Saul or his house, nor 
for, nor is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And then uh, David said, I will do whatever you say. In other words, they weren't after money. They weren't after a lawsuit. The reason they said that we don't have any power to put anyone to death is because they were servants, essentially slaves of Israel. They didn't have any right to do that. But what we're going to see is that they're saying, since even in the Mosaic law said there should be a life for a life, what they're going to demand is the life of those who were responsible, at least a number of them. Now this shows that these people weren't greedy. They weren't out to aggrandize themselves on the backs of a mistake that someone made. They were simply after justice. Verse 6. He says, excuse me, verse 5. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us tried to annihilate them, that was Saul, and who planned to exterminate from from remaining within any border of Israel Let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. Now some of you might be gasping in your own soul, thinking, what? How can this be? How can this happen? And how can David agree to such a thing? Well, we're pansies. We no longer are even identified with justice. Our society has so adulterated justice that we don't even recognize it when we see it. We are used to people who have murdered and raped and butchered and slaughtered other innocent people to go on trial, even in Texas, if they get the death penalty. It's 20 years before they ever even... uh, carry out the sentence, which would be death, and even then it's the sissified needle. I say sissified. I know, well, if somebody's going to die, it's a big deal. But looking at someone sticking a needle in your arm and you just kind of go to sleep is not the same as facing the gas chamber or the noose or firing squad. This is altogether just, and David is going to agree to it. Verse 7, you see, well, verse 6, you see, And the king said, I will give them, I will do it. Now these are sons of King Saul. And before you go off too far on your little track of, oh, this is not right, I'm going to prove to you that these, these guys were a party to this. In other words, they were one of the engines driving this. They engaged in it. They were part of it. They participated in it. Verse 7. But the king, this is King David, spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of what? The oath of the Lord, which was between them, between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. So here we have another oath. Here we have an oath that was broken, and 400 years later, even though it was broken 400 years later, it still has to be rectified. It still is in force. But now David says, I'm going to do this to you. Do you think David recognized the importance of an oath? Absolutely. But he, and in a way we're seeing here, he doubly understands the importance of an oath because he says, okay, I'm going to give them to you, but just so happened that Mephibosheth, poor soul that he was, he had a, a, a crippled leg. He said, you can't touch Mephibosheth. Why? Because David had made an oath to Jonathan that was Jonathan and David were best friends. They were close. They were so close. And David said, I will take care of your family when you're gone. That's an oath. So they can't take, touch Mephibosheth. See, when David became king, most of the time, what do you do? Well, you forget about, in our day, when someone becomes, uh, let's say someone is campaigning to be president, they'll promise the moon. 
As soon as they're elected, what happens? I don't remember any of that. But David did. And now he made an oath, and Mephibosheth was crippled. He was poor. He didn't have anything. And you know what David said to him? You shall eat every night at my table, the king's table, because of an oath, because of his love for Jonathan. So he said, you can have any of them except Mephibosheth. When I taught the David series, I've got to tell one on me right here. I didn't know the right way to pronounce Mephibosheth, which is hard to say anyway. I, and I pronounced it Mephibosheth. <laughs> and nobody called me. Nobody knew any different. I don't know when. I, anyway, that's just a... I don't know what that's for anyhow. Um, so you see the importance of the oath. 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 5 through uh, 16 gives you the information on that oath that he made. Now, just in case somebody might be vibrating still, here's Deuteronomy 24, 16. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor the sons be put to death for their fathers. Everyone shall be put to death for his own sin. So these seven that they killed, that they executed... Uh, were no doubt uh, took part of this. It would appear that the seven sons of Saul that were executed took part in the effort to wipe out the Gibeonites. By the way, when it says they hung them, it doesn't say essentially, just because it says they hung them don't, doesn't mean that they uh, had a scaffold and hangsman, hung, uh, hangsman's noose and hung them that way. Because many times the Bible will refer to the Jews hanging someone. But what it means is that the mode of execution for the Jews was stoning to death. And after they stoned them to death, they would hang them in a tree. And that's probably what the Gibeonites did. We can surmise that. I wouldn't be dogmatic. But they probably didn't hang them with a rope. They executed them in some fashion. Why did they hang them in a tree? Why would they do that? They wanted people to see, hey... You break an oath, you rape, you murder, you do something like that, this is what you're going to look like. And I can't say for sure, but it would stand to reason that the mothers would take little Johnny and little Susan and everybody else and parade them, say, and the kids, when they, got, when they were parading by, here's this bloody pulp hanging up in a, can you imagine, stoned to death and then hung up in the trim and blood dripping and everything. And the kids would probably walk, Ooh, especially the girls. You know, and a good parent would say, get your hands off your eyes. You get up there and look at that. I want you to look at it good. If you ever have any ideas about doing something that would end up with you being executed, this is what you can look like. And what do we have today? We are so sanitized. We protect, uh, I, well, I'm just not going to get on that because I'm, I'm out of time anyway. But we, we, when we think that we protect our children, even they won't even show anybody getting a needle or anything. We're not protecting them. We're hurting them. They, they even remember 9-11 and the people that were jumping off the building? At just the first few moments of that, you could see after that they took that out. I'm not talking about uh, relishing gore. What I'm talking about is being identified and oriented to reality. What right has the news or anybody else to filter out things that they think are not fitting? I think that's the parent's job, isn't it? The good parent will let the children see it and explain to them what it's about. Okay, well, I'm out of time. I'd like everyone, please, to bow your heads, close your eyes. There are people here in this audience that I do not know, and it's possible that they might be concerned about what happens after they die. The good news is that you don't have to be concerned if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ took care of the sin problem for the entire world. That includes you. And the way to receive salvation, eternal life, is through a gift. It is gifted to you, offered 
by simply believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He went to the cross, he died, he was buried, he was resurrected, and now he offers eternal life to you by simply believing in him and his work. Faith alone in Christ alone. And the moment that you do that, your ticket to heaven is guaranteed because God takes oaths very seriously. And so now you can be guaranteed that you, don't, you can't lose it. It's eternal. And you can receive it right now by simply, inaudibly, saying in your own soul, I am trusting Christ and His work, and His work only for my eternal salvation. In that moment, you're born again. Father, we're so thankful that you are our guide, our God, and your word is alive and powerful. We pray that you will help us to meditate upon the things that we've learned today and to be hungry and search for more. For we live in perilous times, but we have a great God, omnipotent and omniscient. We pray that you will help us to be the salt and light that we were called upon to be. And we can't be that if we are ignorant of the spiritual principles and the doctrines of your word. So we pray that you will give us that hunger, that desire to grow in grace and knowledge. For we pray it all in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.